0: Um, for those of you who don't know me, um, my name is Jordan, um, and I pastor primarily in the NDG area. You can put that down just a tad, <clears throat> like that. There we go. Um, so I've come from there this morning, and it's. I'm grateful to be here with you. I am. Thank you, Dwight. Glad to have some feedback. You know, feel free to make make comments. Uh, while I am preaching, I am open to that sort of thing. <clears throat> and I'll have some questions as well. But um, I'll begin with a question today, and that is, who here enjoys ritual and tradition? I see a couple hands. Okay, okay. I know we're meeting um, as part of a church gathering, so maybe some of you are thinking, you know, religious rituals and traditions, things like... Uh, counting the beads on the rosary or fasting for Ramadan. Others of you might have been thinking more generally right? Uh, about a morning routine, for example. The alarm goes off, brush your teeth, hopefully you read your Bible, check your phone, whatever. Um, that's, a, that's a tradition, that's a ritual as well, the morning routine, right? And you don't really think about enjoying something like that. That is until it's, you know, disturbed, and then your whole day is thrown off, and you realize how significant it was. See, we like, we like our rituals, we like our traditions, our our morning routines, but when it comes to uh, enjoying religious traditions and rituals, well, most of us start to think pretty differently about that pretty quick, right? It's easy for us from the outside to observe uh, certain rituals and traditions and say, man, those are just so dead, that's so dry. Like, they've really lost touch with the heart of what's going on there. You know, we do that. We do that so much so that I think, as Christians, some of us look at some of the classical Christian disciplines like solitude and Sabbathing and fasting, generosity, and we say, how can there be any life in that, right? We've actually become pretty hesitant about some of these things. And this is actually what Jesus is going to touch on today? What makes a tradition or ritual dead versus alive? What makes, a, what makes a tradition or ritual dead versus alive? So that's the question I want you to keep in mind as we go through this, this passage, Mark chapter 2, and I'll be get, uh, beginning in verse 18. So, you know, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me. I'll be going phrase by phrase. So Mark chapter 2 and verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and the people came and said to him, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? All right, so we're starting here with two groups. You have the, the disciples of John, John the Baptizer, right? He's the guy we saw in chapter one, and he's been arrested and taken out, but his disciples are still going strong. The disciples of John, and you have the disciples of the Pharisees, those would have been disciples of uh, Jewish rabbinical law. So you have these two groups, and they're both fasting. Now, why are they fasting? Why? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't say in our text, but we could probably suppose a few things. Um, does anybody have any idea why the disciples of John, like as a guess, why, why might they have been fasting? This is a question for you. Yeah, the tradition of the Jews to fast. It was a tradition uh, of the Jews to fast. We're going to look at that here in a moment with the Pharisees. Um, but John was a recent addition, sort of to the world. Like he hadn't been around for very long, so it probably hadn't really set in so much as a tradition. I think it might have been that um, he wasn't there anymore. He's been arrested, and they, they might be in mourning. You know, the prophet's been taken out, and he's preaching this whole message of repent and and be baptized so this is probably a fast of longing and mourning and repentance. Where's John? He's not here. That's the disciples of John. And then the Pharisees would be, like you say, probably tradition. Um, There's a fast of uh, devotion and tradition. In the Jewish law, in the, in the biblical the Torah, God had given one fast per year. That was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The whole, all the people would fast. But by the time of Jesus, if you wanted to be considered like a really devout person, you're going to take that to the next level. You're going to fast on Mondays and Thursdays. And so the Pharisees were followers of that tradition. They would have been fasting on Mondays and Thursdays. You actually see that. In Luke chapter uh, 18, there's a prayer of a Pharisee, and he says, I thank you, God. I'm not like other people. I fast twice a week. That would have been his Monday and his Thursday. And that would have been considered a fast of devotion that people would have, you know, Good job, good job. Thank you for doing that on behalf of the people. Thank you for your devotion uh, to God. And so you have these two groups, Pharisees, they're fasting, the disciples of John, they're fasting, and then it says you have these people, and, you know, they're confused. They're coming to Jesus with this question. They don't know what to do. They feel caught in the middle between these two extremes, right? Do we fast or don't we fast? And I think we often can feel that way as well. We feel caught in the middle between two extremes. Is God this way? Is God that way? You know, should we fast? Should we not fast? What do, you know, should we do these rituals and traditions or should we not do them? And so this is the question that they come to Jesus with. Should we fast? Why, why not? Verse 19, this is Jesus's uh, response to them. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as you have the bridegroom, uh, is, uh, as long as the bridegroom is with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they shall fast on that day. Okay, so this is the first part of Jesus' reply. It's like, it's like at a wedding, he says, and this is a Jewish wedding. A Jewish wedding, I mean, is a big, is a big deal, certainly in the context, multiple days, lots of food, lots of dancing, lots of wine, a really, really great time. And so, of course, Jesus, you know, his response to this question about fasting is like, at, at a wedding, you don't fast, you feast. <laughs> it would be dishonoring to the bridegroom to fast at a wedding. Now, why is Jesus responding this way? Why is he responding this way? Well, when we fast, why do we fast? What are some reasons that We, we, we fast. Yeah, yeah, every time you, you fast, it's a reminder of that hunger and you're kind of retooling or channeling that hunger for God. I think that's um, a good reason uh, to fast. There's, in that, you're expressing there's a, there's a longing, a longing for, for breakthrough in our lives or a, a longing to just encounter uh, more of God, the fast of longing. And so what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, well, what you're longing for has arrived you're longing for has arrived my presence here is that that this is a time of joy and celebration and communion you see as long as i'm with you here on earth as long as my presence is like boom here you do not need to fast Hmm. another way of saying this is as the groom and there's all of these connotations to this i won't get into but as the groom I'm the life of the party. In other words, Jesus was not a party pooper. Jesus, he's not the killjoy of tradition and ritual we might have made him out to be, right? He didn't come with the explicit purpose. He's not coming like, I'm going to repress their freedom of expression. I'm here to restrict your sex lives and divide you into these moral enclaves of religious and not religious. No, not at all. That is not the purpose that Jesus came for. Jesus came, he said, to bring life and to bring it more abundantly. So what does that mean about all this stuff? It's so much more than just you know sexual liberation or self-actualization or moral enclaves, right? It's so much more than that. See, when you rightly encounter Jesus for who he is in all his fullness, you find what your heart is really longing for and it is so much more than those things. It is so much more than that, that Jesus has come to bring life, to bring joy and to bring it to the full and you can know that when you find him as that when you find him to be good like he says he is joy itself you also find his word to be good what you find is that the things that he taught his commands and us as his disciples following those commands would have you know become known as certain rituals and traditions those things don't have to be life diminishing they're actually the very conditions by which life itself can be flourishing. How so? Well, because they lead and they shape and they form our hearts so that we can be more like him, so that we can be with him. That's what, the, that's what these rituals and traditions that Jesus have, you know, that continue in the Christian church are. That's what the spiritual disciplines are. They're, they're, they're practices that reorder our minds and our hearts and our habits so that we can be with Jesus and become like Jesus. You remember how Jesus himself refers to this stuff? How he refers to his commandments, John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you, the commands, that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. These are the very conditions that can bring flourishing. Jesus then, he is the life of the party, and with his joy in us, we can become full. But only when we encounter him, only when we encounter him in the fullness of his joy, does he bring life to these commands and rituals and traditions that come with being his disciples. Otherwise, they're just dead. They're just brittle. They're just dry. And this is what Jesus is getting at in this text. He explains it further. Two more illustrations that have to do with Weddings, garments, and and, and wineskins. In verse uh, 21, he says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The the new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the wineskins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. And so these two wedding examples, in the case of a garment, Jesus says, I'm just I, I, I'm sewing a new patch into the cloth, okay? It's just going to rip the whole thing once it gets wet. This is the context of clothing at the time, okay? You would destroy the whole thing. And the same is the case of the wine, in the case of wine. If, if you put new wine into old wineskins, it's going to burst the skins. It's going to destroy the whole lot of it. You know, I remember when I was younger, the one time I tried making uh, ginger beer with my brother. You know, we put in all the ingredients, you let it sit, and we had it in these two-liter pot bottles. And we, you know, we came back a few weeks later, and the bottles didn't burst. But you know how those two-liter bottles have, like, those stubby four feet at the bottom? They had become, because of the pressure in the expansion of the fermentation, completely round. I was quite surprised to see that. And, of course, Jesus, he knew about this process. And what he's saying, he's like, I'm not only the life of the party here, what I've come to bring is so different, it doesn't fit into any of your existing paradigms. In fact, so it, it'll just blow them up. Do you see what I'm saying here? <laughs> and remember that this is a question about fasting, right? And so what is Jesus saying to the disciples of John? He's basically saying like, you disciples of John, you're, you're fasting and, and mourning and longing and expectation for this deliverance of Israel. Well, the deliverance of Israel is here, it's me. I am the deliverance of Israel. And so no longer do you need to be in, in mourning and longing. No longer like, the, you know, John the Baptist, he wore like sackcloth and all this stuff that his disciples probably did too. Jesus is basically saying, you no longer need to wear this clothing of mourning and sackcloth. Take that all off and put on these whole new garments of praise and celebration. I am here. I am the life of the party. I am the groom. And so if this is what Jesus is saying to the disciples of John, (laughs) what does this mean uh, for us? Do we no longer need to fast? Well, no, Jesus isn't against fasting. You see this in verse 20. He says, you know, when I go, you will fast. We will fast again. He's also not against mourning. So he's not against fasting. He's not against mourning. So what was the paradigm shift here? Well, I'll say it again. That Whereas fasting had previously been in longing and expectation for a deliverer they didn't know, now they can know God. Jesus reveals the face of God. And so fasting then, it takes on this entirely new meaning. This is a paradigm shift. This isn't just something you sew on to, right? This is a whole script flipped that with Jesus here in his spirit filling us, we have a comforter with us. We're no longer alone in our longings and what we're going through, right? The disciples, they're longing for a deliverer. The deliverer has come and we know who he is. That means even in the winds and the waves of life, nonetheless, when you have the Holy Spirit, when you have the comforter, right, you have like this undercurrent of joy in your heart and in your life. This is what is possible because of the Spirit of God. Do you know joy like that? Have you encountered joy like that? And I was thinking and praying about this as, as I was preparing. And I don't claim to have faced much in my life. I don't claim to have gone through a lot of hard times. But one thing I do know for sure is that suffering is a sensu. It is made that much more difficult when you have to go through it alone. And yet this past year, I think back even over small things that we've been through, you know, COVID shutting the church down, people, tons of people moving away because of it, my wife having a baby, none of the family being able to come, those were hard things. And yet I just felt through it all like this undercurrent of joy, and I couldn't even explain it. And as I think about it, man, it's that I knew he was with me, his spirit testifying, advocating to me that I am with you. You're not alone going through all of this in fact i'm over this whole situation as sovereign god i can be a comforter to you and i knew his comfort you can have an undercurrent of joy regardless of what you're facing and this is part of what jesus i think was 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 speaking to those disciples of john and 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 to us okay what about the fasting of the pharisees i think there's there's something important that we can miss here see how did, how did people know that the Pharisees were fasting? is a question for you. How did the people know? They told them, yeah. What else? They didn't just tell them. They made it blatantly obvious. They went around looking all disheveled. Jesus talks about this elsewhere. They looked super mopey. You know, Monday and Thursday was like disheveled and mopey looking day for them. <laughs> Why would they do that? so that everybody would know their devotion, so they could get that thank you, thank you for doing this. Have we done that? Do we do things, you know, we say it's out of devotion for God, and then, you know, I've done this, I've done this, I'll give you a small example. I've done this this with the laundry, okay? I'll do the laundry, and I hope to get a compliment, and I don't get a compliment, and I'm upset, why? Because I want my wife to recognize my devotion to her, right? And see, if I do this with my wife and the laundry, man, how much more so do I do this with God? We want people to notice. And so what is Jesus saying to the Pharisees here? He's saying, this won't do. This won't do. All this going around, making a big deal about your fasting, people noticing you, man, you don't really care about honoring God. You just care about honoring yourselves. And you know what? That's all the honor you're gonna get. That's all the honor you're going to get. See, what the Pharisees couldn't see is that the arrival of Jesus, again, was this complete paradigm shift. This is what the new wineskin represents. It's it's this discontinuity between the, the Jewish religious establishment, everything that they've created, and who Jesus was and what he had come to bring the discontinuity of the wineskins. See, the gospel, it sits in new forms and it sits in new structures and those differ from Judaism. Maybe you've wondered, why don't we have a temple and priests that perform sacrifices? Well, it's because Jesus was the fulfillment and the completion of all those things. In his very self, he came to bring, he says, a new covenant in him, the discontinuity of it is emphasized, but there's also continuity. We're still dealing in the business of of garments and wineskins, aren't we? (laughs) The character of God hasn't changed. His justice against sin is still there. His love towards the sinner is still there. So you see the continuity, but you also see the discontinuity. And so what needed to change in the Pharisees' paradigm, what needed to change in the way that they were seeing and doing things, Well, it's that they believe, like we've been seeing, they believe that their their devotion towards God would be on that basis, God would accept them because of their devotion to God. That's what they believed. And yet, what we find because of Jesus is that God doesn't accept us on the basis of our devotion. He doesn't accept us on, you know, we're talking about fasting. He doesn't accept us on how well we fasted. That's not what earns his approval, It's not how well we Sabbath, we're gonna look at that, that's not what earns it, it's not that you're here, that's not what earns its approval. God doesn't accept us on the basis of our devotion. He accepts us on the basis of Jesus, and that is liberating. That stokes joy in your heart, changes the motivational structure of your heart, such that you want to do things that would enable you to be with Jesus and become more like him. That is the gospel. And you see that internal working as it works in you, it begins to stir, it begins to bubble, it begins to expand, and it makes you want to burst with joy. So much so that all of this stuff, doing stuff out of an attempt to earn God's favor, out of a a self-righteous, prideful disposition, the gospel can blow right through that, showing it for what it really is, right? Dry, dead, man-made, brittle, all of that kind of stuff. The gospel needs to blow through it. Has the gospel blown through you? Has the gospel blown through you? What does it look like for the gospel to blow through you? Let me give you some things. One of the ways you can know has the gospel blown through you is does your heart leap for joy as you hear it proclaimed? Do you see people differently than you once saw them? With a love that you didn't know you had. It says, It says, I've heard it described to me, I've experienced it, but it was a conversation just this past week. It's like the whole world was in color. The people on the bus, my goodness, I just had such a love for them. I I didn't expect that. Do you have a deep bond and affection towards other members of the body of Christ? Love his church. Do you hunger for scripture? Do you want to sing and dance and laugh in the presence of the Lord? Or here's one from Paul. Does it stimulate humility and obedience to the authority of God? That's what Paul says looks like, it looks to be filled with the spirit of God. These are all evidences of his work, of his joy working in our lives. And so you can see from this, God isn't just in the business of like, okay, you got to go do this thing, you got to fast, and you got a Sabbath, and na-na-na-na. He's not in the business of changing what you do. He's in the business of changing your heart, your desires, you from the inside out. And it's out of that place that these things come, that we want to do them. He changes our desires. Now, does it mean in our lives that there will be times when we don't feel his affections that this way, that we don't feel joy this way? Well, yes, yes. But what I would say is this, don't disengage. See, we're in a culture that says like to be authentic. Like if you're not feeling it, just like, just don't do it. You don't feel like reading your Bible, just don't do it. You don't feel like Sabbath, don't do it. You don't feel like being generous, just don't do it. Cut it out. (laughs) don't disengage. See, why are we doing all of this stuff? If you've been tracking with me, why do we do all this stuff in the first place? It's not so that we can get a feeling. It's so that we can be with Jesus. So don't disengage if you don't have the feeling. Tell Jesus about how you're not feeling his affections for you. Pray into it. Press into it. Ask his spirit to restore in you the joy of his salvation. And he can. I can speak to that. So we need the new wine of the gospel in our hearts. And we need it in the church as well. It's easy to lose sight of God in ritual and tradition. As I was uh, thinking and praying about this, there was uh, one example that I thought was relevant in particular to our church community. And that is, I think, that there are some of you here who are enjoying Sunday mornings, who are enjoying the singing, the preaching, and whatever, the community And yet you are quite frankly bored with Jesus. And if that is the case for you, my heart is just so grieved. I do not want you to be excited about all that stuff and bored with Jesus. Would it be that you are enjoying God and none of the stuff that we're trying to do here in our singing and whatever? Enjoying Jesus. It's so scary. It's such like a sleight of hand because it's all Jesus stuff that we're talking about here, right? Community and singing. It's good stuff but it's a dangerous sleight of hand. Earlier this week, I was enjoying the verse, I has not seen, neither ear heard, neither entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for him. We have no reason to be bored with Jesus. God is the great surpriser. He will blow your mind. And if you're feeling that way, let me just reverse this for us. Instead of not fasting, maybe you should fast. Cut it out. What is it that is dulling your affections to God? Fast from that thing. Fasting, Sam Storms would say, is feasting on God. Maybe you need to spend some time pursuing him, saying, I'm desperate for you. And you will find he can blow your mind. Give you joy. So this is Jesus responding to questions about fasting. Next, we're gonna look to a, another ritual in tradition, the Sabbath. In verse 23, one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? <laughs> now what's going on here? <laughs> There's a problem, and it can seem to us, right, from our vantage point, the problem must be, the disciples, this isn't their field, and they're eating the food, so they're, they're stealing from a field that's not theirs. Well, actually, in Jewish law, that wasn't a problem. You were allowed to eat as you walked through fields if you were hungry. That wasn't a problem. You, you couldn't take out the sickle and start, you know, harvesting. But you could eat as you walked through a field. That was legal. The, the, the issue here, the issue here was the Sabbath. The Sabbath, the Sabbath was the day of, of, of Jewish worship and Jewish rest that on a Saturday every week, just as God had rested when he finished his work, the work of creation, so too he had commanded his people to rest in obedience, but as a blessing to him, to enjoy his care for them. This showed that you trust the providence of God. And, of course, other nations around didn't rest like this, so it became an identity marker. And so for the Pharisees who are... um, kind of guardians of that, if you would have it, they were very careful that people observed the day of rest and worship correctly, right? Especially people who are starting new movements like Jesus. Okay, and so this is what's happening in this passage. And the Sabbath, of course, is this day you stop or you cease from work. And so the question had become over time for the Pharisees and the religious leaders, what was considered work? What is work? And they did a lot of thinking, and they did a lot of work, and they came up with these 39 categories of what was considered work. And so what had happened in this passage is the disciples were considered to have broken two of those categories. Now, I have a Jewish friend, and he's explained some of these to me before. One of the categories has to do with, uh, with work and fire, that to light a fire is work. And so if you want to eat on the Sabbath, you need to well, to cook your food in advance and just keep it warm so as not to light a fire. What this means in modern times is you just need to you know, keep the stove on low or something like that. But it also has implications for electricity. When you flip a, a switch, that's considered to be lighting a fire. And so if you want your lights on on the Sabbath, you just have to leave them on before the Sabbath begins. But it gets even more complicated than that, he says. See, many of our fridges have a light in them. And so if you don't want to break the Sabbath, you need to unscrew the light in your fridge before Sabbath so as not to break it inadvertently as you open the door. Now, does this sound to you like a blessing or a burden? Yeah. See, the Sabbath, instead of becoming a blessing, had become this tool of oppression. It had become a burden. And this is what the disciples encountered here, these additions to the biblical law. By the rabbis verse 25 this is jesus's response to them he said to them have you not read what david did have you not read <laughs> yes they've read they've read many times this is jesus saying man you're you've missed something big here it's a bit it's a, he's a he's being a bit hard on them have you not read what david did when he was in need and hungry he and those who were with him how he entered the house of god in the time of abanthar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence which was not lawful for any to eat but the priests, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. <laughs> this is a great response. I'll unpack it for us. Why is Jesus talking about uh, David here? Well, here's David. He's like Jesus says, he breaks biblical law and yet what god has mercy on him and now bringing it forward here's the true david the anointed one of god and his disciples they don't break biblical law just these additions and categories and yet what the pharisees have no mercy on them and so what is jesus doing he's exposing the contradiction you have you have your hero david and you have mercy on him when he breaks biblical law the torah and These guys, they broke just the additions to it and you have no mercy on them. You have completely missed the forest for the trees, right? You have taken something that was meant to be a blessing and turned it into something that is a burden. This is what he means by the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And you know what the reality is, is that we can do that too. We can take things that were meant to be a blessing and turn them into a burden. We can add traditions and rituals and think we are preserving the holiness of the gospel and yet uh, and yet, inadvertently obscure it. What are some ways uh, that we do this? What are there some ways we do this? I think, well, historically the prohibition in America might be a great example, but more contemporarily in our own community, um, how about this? Feeling that you always have to be put together. I always have to look great feel great You'd be emotionally like happy clappy spiritually to tip top shape all the time but when i was talking about having an undercurrent of joy i didn't mean that that's not biblical that's you projecting onto yourself something god hasn't called you to be <laughs> jesus doesn't call us to be happy clappy all the time <laughs> he wants us to be real and vulnerable before him see if we don't ever show our weaknesses there's no place for the gospel to shine through It's an undercurrent of joy. Not all joy. There's still suffering and difficult things we'll face that we need to mourn. It's an undercurrent of joy. So you don't always have to feel like you have your life put together. That can actually obscure the gospel. Really, though, I think the reverse is more likely true in our context. If you really think about this, do we really add that many rituals and traditions? to preserve the holiness of the gospel? No, I don't think so. I think what we have done more is remove rituals and traditions, trying to show the grace of the gospel and actually ended up obscuring it. Do you hear what I'm saying? Things like what we're talking about right here. Fasting, Bible reading, biblical memorization, generosity, tithing, (laughs) sabbathing. Nah, grace. Is it really that way? Yes, there's grace. Yes. But like, let's take the Sabbath for example. I talk to people sometimes and they're tired and I ask them, okay, well, you know, how's your Sabbathing been going? Sometimes they look at me with a blank stare and that just makes my heart sink. It makes my heart sink. Jesus here, he says he's Lord of the Sabbath. What, what Sabbath is he Lord of in your life? How are you defining this? Is it nothing to you? I mean, certainly when Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, the Sabbath means that we spiritually, we enter into the rest of God, that he welcomes the weary home. So beautiful. You no longer need to work to earn his approval through this stuff. But at the same time, as you enter into the rest of God, that should change you and you have a response. And practically, that means you trust his provision, you trust his care, and you're able to to rest. You're able to stop working. For a day, even. What's a rubric that can be helpful with that? I like how John Mark Comer, he says, think about it this way. Is it rest? Is it worship? If you can answer yes to both of those things, great for the Sabbath. If no to either one of them, mm, probably not so good. See, so often what we do when we're saying, I'm resting, you know, we just let ourselves do whatever we want to do. And then at the end of the day, it's like you're like 12 seasons into whatever show and you just feel like a wreck. <laughs> that's not rest. That's not Sabbathing. <laughs> no, that's not what Jesus came to bring. That's not what he's Lord of. <laughs> Jesus came to bring the weary rest. Verse 28 The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Let him be Lord of your Sabbath. See, who else could claim this? Could Moses claim this? Elijah, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. No, not a chance. Jesus saying, I'm in charge. I laid this out. I ordered this thing. I'm not just Lord of this, even of the Sabbath. I'm Lord of all of this stuff. That's an audacious claim. That's a God claim. And they, they recognize that. That's what made them upset. And so that brings us to this next scene. Now they're, they're laser focused. Chapter 3. He entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal them on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So another Sabbath situation here. And do we have people here who are, you know, they're in synagogue. We're in, we're in a worship gathering. Were they there to learn? Were they there to worship? No. They were there to pay attention, to judge, to criticize, scrutinize. And remember, this is the religious elite we're talking about. These are the people who Monday, Thursday, every week, fasting, Sabbathing, was it working out for them? No. See, let this be a, an indicator, a red light on the dashboard of your life. If your spiritual disciplines, if the rituals and traditions that you have as a disciple of Jesus, if they are making you harsher and more judgmental and more critical of the people of God, you have a problem. They are not functioning the way they are supposed to in your life. Okay, so what does Jesus do? Jesus knows this is a Sabbath situation. He knows that this is uh, a lightning rod sort of context that can play out here. There's a, a man with a withered hand who's right there, you know, in the room. And he has a couple of options. What are his options? Well, one is that he can deal with that outside. He can say, you know what? I know... This context, I think, is not good in private. I don't want to rock the boat. I'm, let, why don't you meet me out back, and I'll take care of your hand there? So he could deal with that outside, or he'd deal with it another day. Let's deal with this tomorrow. Today is the Sabbath, and on the Sabbath, we can, we can save a life. We can do CPR or deliver a baby, but healing is considered work, so let's just, let's just take care of your hand tomorrow. Does Jesus do that? No, he doesn't defer to tomorrow. He doesn't do it in private. He hits the challenge head on, right? He's not afraid to confront. Verse three, he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. And he said to the men, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. I love, I love the brazenness of this account. Jesus, he's not afraid to confront. He's not afraid to. Well, what we I guess we say today, he's not afraid to trigger uh, the crowd. He challenges them. And how do they respond? They're silent. Why are they silent? Because they don't have withered hands. They have withered hearts. Withered hearts. Your spiritual disciplines wither your heart, or do they open your heart up to see the most vulnerable and unnoticed peoples of this world? Because that should be the fruit of them. And if not, again, red light. It says, Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. Jesus felt both anger and grief together. You see, in the heart of God, anger isn't wrong. It's actually an expression of the deep injustice of the situation. James calls us to be slow to anger, but have it nonetheless. Jesus has anger. But his anger is not without grief, is it? See, what's anger without grief? What do you get? Anger without grief. You get no compassion. And what do you get if you have grief without anger? You get no action. Jesus' action and compassion together. Pure love. That's his heart. That's his heart towards us. His anger is not in spite of his love, but through it. And he demonstrates it. How? By healing that man with the withered hand. He restores it. It says... He restores it. He's power. And then what do they do? They all raise their hands, praise the Lord. He's healed. No. No. It says they plotted to kill him. They want to destroy the one who has the power to restore. That is the extent of their myopia. That is the extent of them missing the forest through the trees. My friends, we need Jesus We need his spirit to come into us, blow in our hearts and make these practices come alive or they will be dead to us and they will make us more judgmental and more hardened and more weary in our hearts, don't we? (laughs) What's a takeaway? I'll give one that we can get from this. To be bold, to be bold. This is what I was trying to bring out, that notice that Jesus is not afraid of the controversy. He is not afraid to rock the boat. See, sometimes we can get this impression that if someone is upset by us sharing the gospel, that we need to pull back, that we have done something wrong, that we must have said the wrong thing or did the wrong thing. And yet, what do we see here in this case? Jesus said exactly the right thing. He did exactly the right thing, and yet they were upset with him to the point that they wanted to kill him. Now, I'm not calling you to be a jerk. Examine your hearts, for sure. See if it's the grace of God motivating you. But don't be a jerk, but do be bold for Jesus. Allow his spirit to empower you. Do not be silent in the face of oppression. This is what Jesus calls us to respond and to do, to be bold for him. Why? Every every knee one day will bow before him. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. This is the God who we worship. Don't be afraid of what other people will think. Be afraid of what he will think of grieving his heart. Be bold. Jesus, empowered by his spirit, filled with his grace. As we take a step back from this passage, you see, what do we see in Jesus? We see in Jesus that to the one who is hungry, burdened down with care, he says, I am the life of the party. I have come to prepare a feast for you. To the one Yeah, he's here. He's here for us. He doesn't leave us in hunger. He doesn't leave us alone. He comes and he meets us exactly where we are. And I think some of you need to encounter him in that way today. You need to encounter him who has prepared a table before you that you might feast and be filled, who heals the brokenhearted, That is the Jesus who is revealed in this passage, and that is his heart for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are with us, that you don't leave us hungry, that you prepare a feast before us. Jesus, we thank you for your heart to heal, that you move in us, God. I pray that you would come and stir in our hearts and fill our affections for you so that we wouldn't do things out of of dryness and ritual, but empowered by your Holy Spirit, and we would be bold in doing that for you. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. I ask this in your name. Amen.